Let, let me ask you, you know, I was going to come here with a bunch of Super Bowl jokes, but then I got to thinking, how many people entered this football season hoping that either the 49ers or the Chiefs would win the Super Bowl? Were any, so are any of you guys like really long-term 49ers or Chiefs fans? So we have one person. There was like a couple of people in the first service, and that's really the big joke. <laughs> that's really the big joke because I, I'm a Ravens fan, and when Dave asked me to speak today, my, my team was still alive. You know, we were number one seed, and I was going to come here with my Lamar Jackson jersey, and I was going to strut my stuff. And, and I got, we got really humbled. <laughs> and it's interesting, you know, we follow sports because we want joy. We, we want to enjoy and get pleasure from following a team. And in almost all cases, like 90-some percent of the country is going to be a little bit heartbroken today because their favorite team is not in the Super Bowl. So what we were counting on for joy kind of turned into pain, and I'm sure there's a message in that somewhere. <laughs> Maybe we'll get to that today. But um, I like Grace Bible. I want to congratulate you on 40 years. I follow you guys, and, and I try to watch as many of Dave Robert, you know, many of his sermons as possible. And so I saw that for, uh, was a couple of Sundays ago, first Sunday, I think, of the year, y'all celebrated your, your 40th, and that's a great legacy that you guys have here in Georgetown. I'm, I'm happy to have just even a small contribution to that legacy, just to join you in, in these days. Your pastor is a very good speaker, very good pastor, and he does a nice job, like all Bible uh, church pastors, they do a great job taking the scriptures and really digging deep into the scriptures. And as a guest speaker who's not speaking as part of a series, I tend to like to go the other way. Rather than going deep into like a few verses, I tend to like to um, share a number of verses and draw connections, sort of to create a framework, a big framework, the big picture of what God is doing and what our part is in what God is doing. And that's, that's what we're going to cover today, our role in God's big story. This talk is kind of inspired and motivated by my son. He's 22 years old. Last Father's Day, he celebrated Father's Day here at Grace Bible, sitting on the front or first or second row with me. And uh, in January, we launched him. He's 22 years old. We launched him. He moved to Arlington. He's an assistant manager at Puma. And he is like perhaps some of you, or if he's not like some of you, you probably know someone who is like my son. My son has enough faith to believe that God exists. My son has enough faith to believe that Jesus is God in human form. But as my son looks at the world, he says, how can a loving, intelligent God end up with a world as screwed up as the world that we live in? How can there be a world where, where women are raped and people are abused, where there's racism and hatred and all kinds of stuff like that? And he doesn't know how to fit it all together. And so, although he believes that God exists, he isn't always highly motivated to grow in his relationship with God because he's a bit confused. And so, what I'm sharing today is sort of some of my thoughts that were really inspired by my son. And uh, talking about what is God up to and how do we fit in. I think it's important to realize that we are in Act 3 of a four-act play. The first act was the garden. God created a really 
wonderful world, a perfect world, perfect environment. There was no, no death, no mourning, no crying, no pain. We had perfect relationships with God. We had a perfect relationship with one another. We lived in perfect harmony with our environment, with nature. That's act one. That's what we were created for. We were created for a problem-free, pain-free life. And so when my son longs for that, he's longing for that which he was created. He was meant to live in a world like that, not this world. The fourth act will be very similar to the first act. In Revelation 21.4, John writes about the new Jerusalem, and he says, there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. Great promise. But there's a problem with that word, there will no longer be. That little phrase contains a, a catch to it. And the catch is, that's not our experience now. We have to get to that. We're currently living in an environment where there is death and mourning, and crying, and pain. We live in the second and third acts. We're part of that period of time. We live in a world of pain. Nature occasionally abuses us. Abuses us. Certainly, we're frequently abused by one another. Even the best of us, we feel there's some distance with God, even those who know Jesus. <coughs> We feel that there's some distance, even with the people we love the most. We don't have perfect harmony in our relationships. We certainly are not in sync with our environment. This is a world of trouble. It's a world of pain. Was it always that way after the fall? Was there ever a time when it was a little bit better than this? How was life like in antiquity? Life was not better in antiquity no matter how romanticized it may be by some. Children were often aborted, frequently abandoned to be eaten by wolves and other animals. They were sold as slaves. They were sacrificed to pagan idols. Really, a parent could do pretty much anything they wanted to a child. You would not have wanted to be a child in antiquity. Women weren't valued in antiquity. The great ethicist Aristotle said, that the value of a woman was somewhere between a free man and a slave. His teacher, Plato, said that when a man lives a cowardly life, if he lives a cowardly life, he'll be reincarnated as a woman. And if that woman lives a, a cowardly life, she will be reincarnated as a bird. You wouldn't want to have been a woman in antiquity. There weren't hospitals for people like you and me. Hospitals were for soldiers and gladiators. And gladiators were people who basically, in many cases, gave their lives to entertain others. Violence was celebrated. Life was cheap. Men feared death, and they said sayonara to the seriously sick. So the subdued, they suffered in silence until they succumbed. Individual Romans, Greeks, Egyptians, they may have been generous, but antiquity has left us no record of any organized charitable efforts. There was no cooperation 
or community that really strove to help one another and make life better for one another. Although we were created for our problem-free, pain-free world, that's not what we experience. Maybe occasionally we get echoes of Eden or hints of heaven, but pain is all around us, even in our sports. So how do you handle living in a world of pain? Well, there are two choices. You can overlook the pain, usually through a pursuit of pleasure, or you can overcome the pain, usually by making intentional choices to make the world a better place. Most people choose the first choice. They choose to overlook or ignore pain through the pursuit of pleasure. Now, some of those pleasures may be legal, some of those pleasures may be illegal, but almost all of them are making a trade. You trade a little bit of relief, momentary relief from pain for some long-term cost. Perhaps you've heard the expression, a moment on the lips, forever on the hips. I might even be a poster child for death by donut. But that's how a lot of people deal with pain. Another way we deal with a world of pain is we long for a hero. We want somebody to come and rescue us. When we, well, my wife and I, Elaine, we moved to Latvia, part of the former Soviet Union, in 1994, and we stayed there until September of 2010, almost 17 years. When we came back, there was a documentary that was going on that a lot of our friends said we should see because my wife and I love educators and education, and they thought we would really enjoy this documentary, and it was called Waiting for Superman, about the struggles of inner-city schools. And in that documentary, there was a Harlem-based uh, social activist and educator named Jeffrey Canada, and he described his elementary school years and his very real hope that Superman would show up and save the day for him. He says, from a child's perspective, the world is a heartless, cold-blooded place. One of the saddest days of my life was when my mother told me that Superman did not exist. I was like, what do you mean he's not real? And she thought I was crying because it's like this rotund, um, mythical Yuletide character is not real. Don't want to spoil anything for anybody. But I was crying because if Superman's not real, that means there's no one coming with enough power to save us. A little boy crying. There's no one with enough power to save us. I'm here alone. What Canada perhaps did not fully realize is that a hero had come. And that hero is still at work. What Canada did not fully realize is he no longer lives in the second act of the play. He lives in the third act of the play where the hero fights back. The prophet Isaiah described the Messiah to come, and he said that this Messiah, Messiah is no stranger to pain. He's described in Isaiah 53.3 as a man of suffering and familiar with pain. And Jesus came to take on this world of pain that we live in. He says, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. 
in the world, you have tribulation, you have afflictions, you have troubles, you have problems. But take courage. I have overcome the world. So how does Jesus overcome the world of pain? He overcomes in two ways. First of all, he overcame it gradually through his life, his daily service. Jesus did not come to be served. He came to serve. He came to heal. He came to teach. He came to encourage. He came to love. He came to provide for. In small ways, in the lives of those people he interacted, he took away some of their pain gradually. But Jesus also overcomes ultimately. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus defeats our greatest enemy. He defeats death. And that's why Jesus is the greatest superhero. When Iron Man defeated Thanos in Avengers Endgame, and when Luke bought time for the rebellion in The Last Jedi, all those guys merely did was delay death for those for whom they sacrificed themselves. They only delayed death. Ultimately, everybody they sacrificed themselves for would die. Jesus defeated death. Now, Iron Man and Luke, they might inspire good moral actions, courageous actions in the lives of others, but Luke cannot give the force to anybody. Jesus not only inspires moral action, he gives his Holy Spirit to those who follow him. He empowers us. He transforms us and enables us to join him, to be part of the solution, part of the overcoming. And this is a really important part because in those great adventure movies that we like, normal people like us, we're just spectators. But in God's big story, we're not spectators. We are active participants. We are co-laborers in Jesus' story. Every superhero has sidekicks, and we also are meant to be overcomers who take on this world of pain. This is what we read in 1 John 5, verses 4 and 5. And you'll see that one word in particular just dominates these two verses. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. I love those great epic movies. You know, I love the Star Wars movies, the Avengers movies. I love the Lord of the Rings movies. I think there's something that God has put in our heart that we want to be part of an epic story. We want to make a difference. We want to just change our world. God has put that in our heart, and it's meant that we live that out. I would bet almost everybody in this room at some time in your life has prayed these words. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How many of you have prayed that? Pretty much everyone. You know, it's the Lord's Prayer. Now, it may seem like that's a pipe dream, just nice words. But this really is our epic quest, that we might have life on earth as it is in heaven. That life on earth, you know, we're not going to get rid of death, but we can take the sting out of death. We have been given the message of reconciliation and the ministry of reconciliation. We can share a word that will help people be reconciled with God so that when they die, 
they live forever in relationship with God. We could take the sting out of death. We can take what would normally be a period of mourning and make it a celebration. We could celebrate a life well lived and knowing that when we ourselves go, there'll be a reunion. When we die, when they die, we have all experienced or will experience an existential upgrade. We will go into a better situation, a better life, a better world. We can make a difference in small ways that remove a lot of the pain that people experience. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Amazing implications that we get to be part of changing our world. We get to be on an epic quest. Now, this is not new. You guys who have been in church a while, you've heard things very similar to this, and so you have made choices in the past. Perhaps you've chosen um, not to have an expensive coffee and to take that money and, and give it to a worthy cause. Perhaps you've chosen to um, maybe not be comfortable on the couch one night, but to, but to be part of a literacy program and read to children or, or be part of the serving center or a caring place and help feed the hungry. Perhaps you've done something at church that would help advance the ministries of the church. Perhaps you want to invest in the youth of the church. And you want to know, okay, I have sacrificed. I've sacrificed some of my time. I've sacrificed some of my money. I may have even sacrificed my reputation. Is it making a difference? Is it worth that sacrifice? I think that's a natural question, a natural desire for us. Is our sacrifice worth it? Because in the law of sowing and reaping, there's always a gap of time between when the effort is sown and when the fruit is shown. And let's look at that verse that we get the law of sowing and reaping from. That's uh, Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 to 10. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from that flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those of the household of faith. So to summarize these verses, I see two main points and a conclusion. The first main point I see is that we are to sow to the Spirit. Why? Because if we do, we'll reap eternal life. You can sow to other things. You will also reap other things. The second point is do not lose heart in doing good. Why? Because you will reap results if you don't grow weary. And so the conclusion is do good to all people, especially those in the household of faith. I want to take some, a couple minutes now and connect some of the dots that we've We've laid down some things here. Originally, we said there are two choices for dealing with the problem of pain. There is overlooking it through pursuing pleasures, or there's overcoming it through intentionally making choices to make the world a better place. Galatians 6 gives it a different label. It starts to label those choices. The choice to overlook pain is called sowing to the flesh. The choice to overcome pain is sowing to the Spirit. The, cho the choice to sow in this, to the Spirit is not the, the road often traveled 
The road often traveled is overlooking it, sowing to the flesh. And then 1 John 5, 4, that verse about us being the sidekicks, we saw that the victory that overcomes the world is our faith, and I want to take a couple of seconds to explain that because it takes a lot of faith to be an overcomer. It takes faith that my efforts will result in rewards for myself both now and in eternity. It takes faith to know that my efforts will result in positive difference for those whom I'm, I'm trying to help and for society as, as a whole. It takes faith to practice delayed gratification, whether you're talking about diets or difference-making. It takes faith to give up an immediate pleasure or something that you can't see until down the road. It's hard to be an overcomer. I want to share about a reformer, someone that, that really is a great example, and that's a man named William Wilberforce. Perhaps some of you have heard of him. William Wilberforce was a wee little man, five foot two, lived in Great Britain. He was headed for great things. He was a, a spoiled little rich kid headed for ultimately being the prime minister. At the age of 25 in 1784, he became elected member of parliament. God got a hold of his heart in 1785. He became a Christian then and was radically transformed, radically converted. Two years later, in 1786, William Wilberforce finds his cause in life. He decides he's going to uh, become an abolitionist. He's going to join a group of guys, a group of people, men and women, and they are going to get rid of the slave trade in Great Britain. In 1791, as a member of parliament, William Wilberforce, for the first time, introduces a bill to outlaw the slave trade in Great Britain. It is defeated, two-thirds of the party parliament voting against him. William Wilberforce is mocked and jeered. He's called a traitor to his class. How could you do this, William? But William was convinced that he was on the Lord's side, that this was the Lord's work. And every year, William would reintroduce that same bill Every year, behind the scenes, he would be persuading and informing, persuading, informing, trying to change hearts, trying to change minds. Every year, a little bit more Parliament voted alongside him. Until in 1807, William Wilberforce led the effort to get the slave trade outlawed in Great Britain. Now, for many people, that would be the crowning achievement of a lifetime. But William Wilberforce was not satisfied. He said, okay, we've outlawed the slave trade, now let's outlaw slavery. And for the next 26 years, William Wilberforce worked tirelessly to outlaw slavery. It was outlawed 26 years later in 1833 in Great Britain, and three days later, William Wilberforce dies. What keeps a guy like William Wilberforce going? How can you work for so long and for so long, not seeing all that much result, bringing it down to our level, what keeps a parent going? I mean, we sow into our children, our grandchildren, and a lot of times, we don't always see a lot of results. Daily, you know, we're putting in good stuff, and I'm not seeing good stuff all the time coming out. What keeps a teacher going? I love teachers. My, my father was a principal, 
and he was involved in public education from the time he was 22 until he died at age 76. He was still working at schools three days a week when he was killed in a car accident. Teachers make immense difference in the lives of students, but a lot of times the difference they make, they never see. They sow good stuff into the lives of students, and it doesn't come out until years later when the student all of a sudden realizes, you know, that second grade teacher of mine, she changed my life. Maybe that student will then go and thank her, often not. What keeps a teacher going? It's easy to get discouraged. You're thinking you're not making a difference. Well, we can get some answers, I believe, from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. Paul writes, Therefore we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, and I can testify that that is true, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For a momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And there's a lot we could talk about with these verses, but I want to really just focus on the one main point. How do we strengthen our hearts? There's a couple of things we need to realize from these verses. First of all, we realize that our inner man is being renewed. Our afflictions, our troubles, our difficulties are not meaningless. They are not pointless. God uses them to carve us, to make us different people, to make us more like Jesus. Trust, you, trust me, none of us come to Christ anywhere close to being like Jesus. And yet being like Jesus is the best life we could possibly have, the best we could possibly be. Being like Jesus is so valuable, it's more important and more valuable than being rich. It's more important and more valuable even than being healthy. There's nothing better than being like Jesus. And we, we sang that this morning, you know, you know, whatever your will is, whatever your ways, I want to I want to take it joyfully, always. I want to be like you. And we can sing that, but when it comes push to shove, man, we, we want to resist. But it's through our difficulties and our afflictions that God is pruning us and making us a little bit like Jesus. My wife and I are both cancer survivors. Uh, she had cancer in 96. She was given a 20% chance to live, and praise God, um, she's still alive. I had cancer in 2017. I was given a 90% chance to live, and I'm still alive. But in both cases, the fight against cancer took something from us. Neither one of us are the same people physically that we were before our fight against cancer. And as I was going through um, the cancer fight, I really learned a valuable lesson. That there was nothing that could be taken from me that wasn't a gift in the first place. Anything that I could lose that I felt was valuable was a gift from God anyway. And so it changed my perspective. I started thinking not about what I had lost, but what I still had. And even for the things I lost, instead of then being so bitter about it, I was grateful that for so many years of my life, I had that gift. 
Our inner man is being renewed. We're becoming like Jesus. I also realize that our afflictions, difficulties, are considered momentary, light, and they yield a great reward. Now, I know everybody in this room's got some difficulties, some problems, some afflictions. And I don't know yours, you don't know mine, but it's hard to hear someone say that your afflictions are light. There's an old spiritual that says, Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrows. That's the truth. Nobody knows your afflictions and troubles, except Jesus, of course. And you might say, well, David, how can you call them light? Paul, how can you call them light? Well, let's consider Paul. He's the guy that wrote that sentence. He's the one that called your afflictions momentary light and light. Let's look at his biography as he unpacks it. So he calls them momentary and light in uh, 2 Corinthians 4. But then he talks a little bit more about his life in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, I've been in far more labors, in far more imprisonments. I've been beaten many times without number, often in, in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, and that's not drugs, um, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys. I've been in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Nobody knows the troubles that Paul has seen. And so if Paul wants to call afflictions and troubles momentary and light, he has the credibility to do so. You know, it's important to realize that light is a relative term. You know, is an elephant heavy or light? Well, it just depends on what that elephant's compared to. An elephant is heavy compared to a mouse. An elephant is light compared to a mountain. Our troubles and afflictions might be heavy compared to a pleasant dinner with friends, but compared to the reward that awaits us in eternity, it's light. Now, whether that seems like it's heavy or light to you might depend on how well you think about eternity and the rewards that are coming to you. Are the rewards that you will get in eternity real to you? There's a book that John Burke wrote called Imagine Heaven, and there's a shorter version called What's After Life, and it deals a lot with near-death experiences. There's another man named Randy Alcott who's written a lot about heaven. I'd really recommend reading the scriptures related to heaven, because the clearer the picture is you have of heaven, the better you can have context to things that happen to you here in life. You know, I talked about our going to heaven as being a, like an existential upgrade. Nobody minds, nobody minds moving from coach to first class, you know? Nobody minds if they get to go to Disney World an extra two hours early. 
Is heaven good? Is heaven beautiful? I really believe it is. I've told my wife, I said, you know, I know that when I go to heaven, if I go before you, it will be a loss to you. But it's not going to be a loss to me. And I, t- I trust, trust me, when I'm in heaven, I won't care about the Super Bowl. I will, you know, because my wife will sometimes talk about her father, like when LSU plays or Houston Astros, she'll say, I wonder if my father's watching. And I go, no, no, I hope he's not. I hope that heaven is so wonderful that he doesn't have a care about what the Astros or LSU is doing. I won't care about the Ravens when I'm in, in heaven. It's a lot better than that. Now, some of you may have thought, you know, David, you went a little overboard when you talked about this world of pain and how bleak things can be. Things don't always seem that bad. And if that's your point of view, then praise God. Because we overcomers have been at this for 2,000 years, and we really have made a difference in those 2,000 years. We talked about that in antiquity. There was no record of any organized charitable activity Well, in 2018, in America alone, over $428 billion were given to charities. That did not happen in antiquity. There's been an immense amount of wealth just given up, surrendered to remove pain in the world, to create hospitals, to create um, opportunities for people to get job training and other things that will reduce pain in their lives. The Christian ethic of all men are created equal and all men are equal under the law has just revolutionized social justice. We saw its influence on William Wilberforce. That same influence affected America. The leaders of our abolitionist movement were all Christians. And the Underground Railroad, which was a network of churches and households helping um, slaves escape to freedom until there was um, emancipation for those slaves, that was largely led by Christians. I don't know if you saw the movie Harriet, which was released last November. It was about an amazing woman, Harriet Tubman. I love Harriet Tubman. And uh, if you know anything about T- Harriet Tubman, you will want her on your $20 bill. See that movie. It does a really nice job of honoring her faith. I've been to Harriet's, Harriet Tubman's museum in Maryland. She, she lived on the eastern shore of Maryland. The museum has been open like two and a half years, and I've already been there twice. And on the walls, it talks about quotes from her and her faith in God and her love for God and how that motivated her and helped her sustain her. Because she went back numerous times back in the slave-held areas where she could liberate people and bring them to safety. She, um, I think she had nine trips and freed over 60-some slaves. It's just great. We take for granted education for all, that everyone should be able to read, everyone should be educated. That's a relatively new thought. Education was originally only for the elite. It was only in the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century that the idea of education for all came into into being. And it's because the Protestants were people of the book. We believe that our authority comes not from popes, but our authority comes from the Bible. And so we need to read the Bible. We needed to have the Bible in our own languages, not in Latin. So the Christians, the Protestants, have always been people uh, who were pro-education, pro-literacy. And we're involved in that to this day. 
I know that here in, um, in Georgetown ISD that, that Grace Bible is really one of the leaders of Education Connection. I'm involved in Education Connection. I'm on the core team for Round Rock ISD. The idea is that we want to see every child reading at grade level by the end of third grade with the idea that if they can read at grade level, they're much less likely to drop out, much less likely to be unemployed or underemployed, much less likely, instead of taking from society, really being able to give to society. It's a wonderful, enjoyable volunteer opportunity. And who knows what difference you can make. One child able to read at grade level might very well mean one less rapist, one less abuser, one less thief, one less murder, many fewer victims, and much less pain in the world. One child able to read at grade level might change the trajectory of many lives. You probably will never on this side of heaven know the difference. You won't know these things, the difference your investment in something like Education Connection will make. God knows, and I think ultimately we will know too. may not be here, but we will know ultimately how God used our involvement in programs like this. I want to wrap things up now. Um, a little over 30 years ago, 1989, I took my wife on our first date. I took her to the feel-good movie of the summer, Dead Poets Society. <clears throat> I don't know how many of you saw Dead Poets Society. If you did, you're probably laughing. It's not one of those happy little movies. But it, to me, it was very inspiring. And there was one line from that movie that resonated in my soul. That the powerful play goes on, and you may contribute a verse. There is a book of overcoming being written. It started with Jesus as he birthed the third act. It started with Jesus. He handed it down to Peter, Paul, James, John, the apostles. They handled it down, handed it down to their disciples who handed it down, who handed it down. All of those men, normal people like us, they contributed their verse when they had their day. It got to William Wilberforce and his army of abolitionists. They had their day, and they contributed their verse. It got to America, to Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad. They had their day, and they contributed their verse. In the 20th century, it got to Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, a Christian minister, and the civil rights movement, largely based on Christian principles. They had their day, and they contributed their verse. All of these people, normal people like us, being faithful, wondering, are we making a difference? Are we making a difference? And they changed the world. They had their day. They, they contributed their verse. They changed their world. They kept going, even when they didn't see the change. Today is our day. And we can contribute our verse. Brothers and sisters, do not lose heart. Do not grow weary in doing good. Do not stop being lights in the world. We too shall overcome. Lord, I thank you that our family business, a family business that's been in play for about 2,000 years, has been to change the world, to overcome pain to take the sting out of death. I thank you for our founder. I thank you for Jesus. Our, he's the superhero, and we're only the sidekicks. But boy, 
It's exciting to be part of this enterprise, to be on this epic quest. I thank you that we don't do that alone, that we do that with brothers and sisters in this congregation. And this congregation is linking arms with brothers and sisters in other congregations. And the congregations of Georgetown are linking with the congregations in Round Rock who link with the congregations in Austin and Cedar Park and Leander. And the Central Texas congregations are linking arms with Dallas and linking arms with Houston. And the congregations in Texas are linking arms with the congregations in other states. We are not alone. Together, we can be powerful. Help us, Lord, individually not to lose heart, to be faithful to our small part in the big picture. Thank you that you have entrusted us such a wonderful, wonderful quest. In Jesus' name, amen.